0: Hello and welcome! My name is Alex Macphail, and this is High Performance Teams. I'm a former aerobatics display pilot from the South African Air Force and I love talking about high performance teams, what makes them work and what we can all learn from them. In the show, we talk to race pilots, professional sportsmen and women, entrepreneurs, comedians, performing artists and more. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. Good afternoon to you and welcome once again. My name is Alex Macphail. I love high-performance teams. And today I've got an interesting guest for you. Have you ever wondered what it's like to land a military aircraft, a fast jet, on a moving platform? The, the uh, Charles de Gaulle is the nuclear aircraft carrier with the, the French Navy. And today my guest is Pierre-Henri atay Good afternoon to you and welcome, Ate. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing today in France?
1: So far, so good. Perfect weather, so can't complain. Oh, that's
0: good. Are you guys in full lockdown or have you got a bit of mobility? Are you getting out and about and running, etc.?
1: Yeah, it's sort of a a weird full lockdown. It's officially, I mean, for French, it's supposed to be full lockdown, which means you're allowed to go outside about one hour a day if you don't meet other people. So it's not that bad. Uh, It's much better than being on a carrier, actually. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Interesting point that you, uh, that you bring up a carrier because uh, that's quite a confined uh, space. And uh, we've spoken about this before as well. Pilots spend many, many hours uh, strapped into a small confines of a cockpit. But I, I don't think it gets any more challenging than, well, certainly for a pilot on an aircraft carrier. So uh, with that note, let's kick off a little bit. So just uh, for, the, for the viewers and the listeners, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where it all started. I know you're the, the son of a, of a pilot as well. So tell us a bit about yourself, i tell.
1: Sure. So I'm uh, 33. I'm French and Canadian, as you might see, seen with my, my Canadian flag in the background. Um, I've spent 13 years in the service in the French military. I got my training in the U.S. I started flying at 14, general aviation, and then I got into uh, sports like uh, air rally, precision flying. Joined the Navy at 19. I got two years of training in the U.S. and then spent nine years in uh, frontline squadrons for the French Navy. Flew Super Etendard, the aircraft over there. Uh, Rafale as well, uh, this one, omni aircraft, all type of mission. And I had the chance to display in air shows um, uh, all over Europe, which was pretty nice. I ended up uh, an instructor and left the service two years ago to fly 737 MAX for Air Canada, which is an unusual aircraft to fly. I don't fly much. <laughs> and, uh, and now <laughs> what I do is... Um, I'm basically a speaker and I do consulting for, for the corporate world. I do consulting in video games, in um, big military contracts, lots of different stuff. So, I'm having a lot of fun now as well.
0: Okay. So, the 737 MAX is an interesting You went from quite a high-risk operation to uh, it seems like a currently high-risk airplane, but I'm sure they're getting on top of that. Okay. Sounds like a fascinating background. So, how was it that you ended up uh, doing your training in the United States if you're now Canadian, but you're originally French? You did training in the United States? Talk us through that.
1: Yes, um, back in the days we had a big navy, so we had our own schools, and it's been about thirty years now. We spend we we ship our, our sailors or training officers in the U.S. to get the training there. So there is only about nine naval aviators winged, so qualified every year. So we are basically um, exchange officers, and we get the entire training with the U.S. Navy, which is, which maybe uh, it just it's an awesome school. So I spent twenty six months between Florida and Mississippi did my first uh, dive bombing missions in the U.S., first aircraft carrier landing in the U.S. And once you're qualified, you go back to France, and then you go through all the... French navalization process. Uh, but it's easier to learn on the on U.S. carriers than on the French one. The French one is, is much smaller.
0: <laughs> so. Well, give us a sense. Okay, so you've brought up quite a few interesting things and I'm going to try and weave through this conversation. There's a lot of people already starting to say hello and ask questions. Welcome to you. Please bring your questions. I'm sure Atay is very keen to to get stuck in. So uh, the first thing you've mentioned now is that the US uh, naval uh, platforms are a bit bigger. So what's the scale? How big is that uh, Charles de Gaulle footprint of landing and how big is the US one? What was the one that you landed on in the US?
1: Sure. So just to give you a rough idea, a US carrier is up to 100,000 tons, 100, and the French one is 40,000 tons. So it's like 40% the weight of a US carrier. In terms of crew, you've got 6,000 people on board a US carrier. You only got 1,900 ish on the French carrier. So our boat is much smaller and because it's smaller, the constraints just go up the roof. If you look at the U.S. carrier, you can take off and you can land at the same time. You can have like dual operations, aircraft taking off, aircraft landing. French one, you can't. If you're landing, you have to park the aircraft on the front catapults. So we have to be extremely precise and from just that small issue, there is a lot of constraints. So being a, a naval aviator, requires a very unique DNA compared to Zero Force where you can basically land when you want. Very different constraints.
0: Oh, so it brings a whole new meaning to the, uh, you know, the, the the constant fighting and chirping of each other, the, you know, the fast jet pilots and the, the multi-role pilots and the, the two cockpit pilots. Now you've got the Navy and the Air Force competing. Okay. It is very precise. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are very fascinated with this. So is the actual landing distance, I know you said the side-by-sides can't carry on, but is the landing distance a similar length on the French one versus the US or is it also shorter?
1: Yeah, the French one is shorter. Um the big point, just to put stuff into perspective, uh, you have the edge of the boat at the rear. Um, when you're flying on the glide path, your aircraft passes about ten f- eight feet above the rear of the boat. Eight feet. That's the margin you have in France. If the boat moves one degrees, the rear of the boat is going to move up in the air or down nine feet. Oh, <laughs> so, because the boat is smaller, you're basically aiming for something closer to the, to the rear of the boat, so all your margins are are different. So, the angle is higher, a lot of different stuff. But in, in terms of length, uh, the French carry is a bit smaller, but it's not that much of an issue. Really, the issue is this distance you have at the rear, because what you don't want to do is hit the rear of the ship, and it happened in the past, unfortunately, before.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, it, so, it sounds very precise If you. You're talking about 8 feet, 9 feet, 10 feet, and the, the movements that's... Uh, details matter in your game and uh so just uh, as we discuss now let me just put a picture up there for the folks to see so there's a picture of you taking a selfie on board i presume this is the Charles de Gaulle and uh, lots of aircraft behind you there's a helicopter being towed up there's some um, some towing services just in the foreground here give us a sense of what happens on an operational part of the day you know there's obviously a lot of support but as you're preparing to depart how many different services are you interacting how big is this team just to get you airborne
1: a lot. Um, I, I'm sure. I'm sure you've seen Top Gun before. <laughs>
0: sure, compared to the new Top one. Gun.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you recall the ending scene when you have all the guys on the flight deck and everybody's cheering and applauding all that stuff and sure. cheering, sure. cheering Maverick and, and the rest of the guys. So y- sure. you see, there are a lot of guys on the flight deck, and it, it is true you do have a lot of guys. And to make stuff easier, because there is a lot of wind. Uh, when we catapult or recover aircraft, you have between 25 and 32 knots of wind on the flight deck. So it's a very loud environment. So to know who's who in the goo, uh, basically everybody has different colors. So okay. let's say you're dressed in um, in, uh, in brown. It means you're in charge of an aircraft. You're dressed in red. You're in charge of munition. So you have a, 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 a lot of guys around you. Usually when you're starting the aircraft, you have 6 to 12 mechanic. Around you, and you know exactly who's doing what. So, let's say you have an issue with a bomb. You're going to sign your ground guy. Is going to then get the red guy, and the red guy is going to come on the earphone. So everything is very precise. But on the flight deck, at any given moment, you easily have more than 100 to sometimes 200 people, plus guys below the, the deck working on the nuclear engines, guys making sure the boat is steering in a good direction i mean it's, it's a small airport it's a small town basically it's two thousand people living together and at any single time you have at least 35 percent of the crew working
0: okay well that sounds fascinating sounds like a nice uh, complex arrangement but you're making it nice and clear and simple with the colors that must be good. There's a few people asking some questions and saying hello. So, hello to everybody. Thanks for joining. Do you need to be French or how good does your. Do you, do you have to speak French to be able to join the French Air Force or the, the French Navy, as it were, for you?
1: It, it can help. Yeah, speaking French is usually a good idea. Uh, <laughs> jokes aside, yes. You, you have to be a French citizen. So, I've, I've yeah. got dual citizenship. Uh, you have to be a French citizen. And that's basically it. And you have some French exams. So, you could imagine you're. French citizen but you don't speak French chances are you're not going to make it through the training okay That's basically it, or they won't. I mean, it's, it's going to show at some point during the selection process. So sure. All right. But, uh, but, but
0: <laughs> Our guest yesterday was from Canada, <laughs> and he was quite, uh, quite um, generous to saying, if you are able to get into Canada, there's no age description. You know, you can join the, the Canadian armed forces. So I think that's where the questions are coming from. Another question says, yeah, uh, when you land on an aircraft carrier, how do you judge the touchdown zone as your runway is moving forward and pitching up and down in the ocean? You want to talk us through that? Let's put a little picture up here as well. Sure. Okay, no, that's not a good picture for uh, this discussion. Uh, uh, yeah, there we go. So that's actually the departure, but there you can see the, the wheels just leaving the, the, the deck right there.
1: On an aircraft carrier on the side, you have what we call um, the meatball. So you, you have a fresh nail lens. It's a, it's a system. It's like in commercial aviation, a a, papi, a papai. So, so it basically gives you an idea of where you're standing compared to the guide path you're supposed to be flying at, which is usually between 3.7 degrees and 4.2 degrees. The more movements you have, the higher the angle, because you want to stay clear of the back of the ship. So let's say if you're in rough seas, your angle of approach is going to be more 4.2 degrees and 3.7. Normal commercial aviation is 3 degrees, so we're coming in steeper. And on the side, where we have like this light reference, and we're flying our, our glide path, in accordance with that reference and this reference is on a big stabilized platform so if the deck movements are within the margins it's going to be stable if it goes past those margins happens to me once in two 200 landings then you don't have any help <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay. it's scary that happens to me once I, actually it was so off of the charts that the commanding officer of the boat once i landed in my third attempt came to greet me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, as a commanding officer of the boat. I'm, I'm so sorry, Ate, like, uh, I got trapped by the weather, blah, blah, blah. So he came in person to, to wow. apologize because the system was of the sharks, basically. But uh, so we're going to be using this or we're going to use our add-up display. As you know, in our jets, we have this add-up display, all those information in front of us. And uh, Dassault made a, an outstanding job working on it because we don't have automatic landing. In the U.S. they do. We do not. So we have to do it manually. And we can... Tell our computer the speed of the boat, and it's going to help us through like a small, um, small stuff in the in the head-up display, and we just put the the thing on the thing like an ILS <laughs> basically, <laughs> and, and it helps us um, get closer to the boat. Okay. Uh, if you look on YouTube, you can, you, you type in Rafael uh, carrier landing. I'm Pretty sure you, you you'll find some videos, but um, yeah. no automatic
0: system. So yeah. <laughs> now you you've been you've been quite. Uh, um, present on social platforms particularly on linkedin you put some great videos there of uh, of how you are related to your training with the, the manager and we'll get to that your, your organization debrief shortly uh, but you touched on something that i thought maybe we can just zoom in a bit more so is there a point where you cannot land back on this deck i mean obviously you're out far out to sea thousands and thousands of miles away that's a different scenario but uh, is there a point where you call it off and you know this is going to be either an ejection or, or run to another base how do you talk us through that
1: Sure. Um, We have two types of operation. You have operation with diversion airfields. Let's say you're at less than 50 miles from a friendly airport. And friendly is important because if you're off the coast of Yemen, for example, you might not want to divert to Yemen. You never know. So you might be close to the shore, but you don't have any diversion airfield. That's part of the magic of naval aviation. (laughs) So either you work with a diverting um, airfield or you work autonomous, what we call blue water. You're in the middle of the ocean. It's usually what the U.S. do. Nobody's here to help you. So how does it work? You anticipate as a skipper of the boat, you have like a a lot of specialists on board and you're going to make sure your aircraft carrier is in an area where the weather is going to be nice. So you're moving, steering your aircraft into good weather and um, to make stuff easier. But let's say you have a catastrophic failure on the aircraft carrier. You can't Mm -hmm. recover anymore. You easier land. Um, have um, tankers take off, so you can have Rafale with refueling pods so that would enable the aircraft to stay airborne longer. We don't have um, all issues anymore. We used to have them with a the Super E, not with a Rafale anymore. So you could wait for repairs or you can try to make diversion pants even if you don't have closed diversion airfield. Or if really you have no options then it's yes, it's the ejection. But usually when you come back from a mission you have two to three attempts to land on the boat. If you can't do it, you go on a refueler and you give it a shot. When you're a refueling aircraft, you're here for the safety of the other guys. When you have to land, nobody's up there to help you. So you have three attempts and that's it. If you don't make it, you eject. So it can be a stressful job.
0: That's quite, a, yeah, that's quite rough. Okay, so um, talk us through then how you, you, you build up. Okay, so that first approach didn't work out well. You, you kind of shake it off and you get ready for the second one. But by then, your stress does start building. And the third time, I'm sure your third time... The, the stress levels have got to a point where you know that, A, you're not functioning as well as you were 10 minutes ago, but, B, this is your last attempt before you break it off. So, so talk us through the moment after that where now you're going to go meet up with the tanker, refuel, and how do you get yourself detuned again to be back in the zone again for your next three attempts uh, in, in a few moments' time? Um, breathing,
1: me- breathing method helps. So you try to, to, to really... Um, Exhale quite a lot. Moving your finger toes, like when you fly formation, helps a lot. Uh, it's all about getting focused. It's all about getting back to your focus zone. And I think everybody's a bit different. So during the training, you get to know yourself better. I was in sports before. I did a, a triathlon, duathlon, and precision flying world championships as a teenager. So I was into sports. So I knew myself quite a lot in terms of uh, of stress management before. So I have my own methods, which is basically a mo- mental preparation and a lot of breathing techniques so if stress pulls up too much that's where I'm going to get to Um, but usually it's more about debriefing yourself in the aircraft and asking yourself why was my attempt unsuccessful and you try to to analyze what you did why it didn't work and what you're going to change because usually if your landing didn't work it's because of something And you're going to try to identify what it was and you're going to change something. And on your next attempt, you're not going to do a copy and paste from the previous attempt. You're going to implement this change. So we're always into this. And stepping back, I analyze what I'm going to change. Oh, I'm going to try to change this. Um, One time when I was a young pilot, it took me seven attempts to land. Seven.
0: That sounds, uh, Uh, that must be a major stress, major, major stress.
1: And it was around lunchtime. So seven attempts, that's two air refueling in the middle. Seven mm-hmm. attempts like this takes you about an hour-ish, uh, slightly more than an hour. So it was, uh, it was something, <laughs> but uh, the issue was coming from me. I wasn't stepping back, analyzing what the issue was, and I wasn't preventing changes. So the guys on the boat wanted me to analyze it by myself, so they wouldn't help. But it was a training mission. And until I understood I had to implement changes, I just let me try again and
0: okay. try again and <laughs> try again. <laughs> wow, that's a real <laughs> <one>. <laughs> a baptism of fire on that one. Wow. Okay, um, I tell you, I've got some questions coming through. Let me just address some of them. So, Kubas, thanks for joining us. He says, the most beautiful aircraft ever built. That's it. I agree with you, Kubas, The Rafale is wonderful. And they say the marine version is even more special. How many hours on the Rafale and how many total hours do you have now, Ate? I've got 2,500 hours total. I've
1: got 800 hours on the Super E, this one, and I've got 800 hours-ish on the Rafale as well.
0: All right, that's uh, that's 200 a... carry landing. <clears throat> 200 carry landing sounds like a decent one. There I put a picture up of the uh, of you standing in front of the aircraft. Looks like you're on a on a land base, not at sea. And you can just get the perspective. A, it's a beautiful airplane, and B, it's quite a big thing too. You know, it's a, it's a big piece of machine that you're throwing around there. Talk us a little bit about this. I'm going to put another picture of, that you shared with me of the. Uh, the condensation as there must be a nice hard pull up. Talk us through the sort of uh, the flying of this airplane. It looks like a beauty to fly.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, so it's pretty big. I mean, it's about 10 tons, empty weight up to 24.5 tons is everything below it. Taking up from the boat, it's a maximum of 21 tons, usually 25 uh, air shows that would take off at 13.5 tons. Combat mission, 20 tons ish. Uh, so the aircraft is very different depending on the condition you're flying. Um, let's say you're flying slick like this, airshow uh, configuration. It's going to be very agile, uh, plus 11 Gs, 270 degree uh, per second of roll rate. It's going to be extremely aggressive. Now, if you add all the fuel tanks, three fuel tanks, six bombs, it's not the same aircraft anymore. Um, it's going to be 150 degree per second of roll rate, 5.5 Gs. Once you take those five G's, it's gonna like degrade all that airspeed, and because we have that, those delta wings, as soon as you go above a given AoA, your wings just like for a Mirage three or become your air, air brakes. So you have to okay. be very, very careful on how how much you pull on the aircraft because when it's like that, it's like super fast. When you start pulling AoA, it just stops in the air, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I intercepted a, a, an Iranian drone um, in the Gulf once, and it was flying at 100 knots in that direction, and I was coming at Mach 1.4 on the other side, <laughs> and uh, we went from Mach 1.4 with my wingman to 100 knots in a 180-degree 100, uh, turn, cool. so just to give you an idea of how powerful those the speed brakes right <laughs> there can be. Basically. You could like, 11g's idle and. Uh, then you can really stop in the air. And we're allowed to fly 200 knots with a uh, with Rafale.
0: Oh, wow. Kubus I'm sure you enjoyed that. Kubus is a very experienced fast jet pilot himself. I'm sure you enjoyed that little bit of a uh, explanation. Uh, Rihanna saying hello and thank you. Very interesting. Franca, how much time between launching aircraft? Is the limiting factor the steam catapult or lining up the aircraft on the deck, the actual maneuvering?
1: Well, lining up the aircraft on the deck is is really the limit. Um, so it's it's usually... It's usually one, I mean, we could, two different catapults can shoot you in the air at the same time, and then it's going to take about
0: one minute-ish to have another round. Is that for it's the, usually one minute. Uh, one minute of the steam to build up again, is that what you're saying?
1: And just like the time to taxi, is, you know, the, the new aircraft and... Okay. have it attached to the steam catapult all that system.
0: Okay, well, let's have a look at that takeoff right now. Uh, here we go. We're gonna. I know you can't hear it. Uh, this is, comes from a clip uh, linked on the show description. You can see afterwards. And this is an t- aircraft. The Rafale is taxiing up and it's clipping on that, uh, that steam catapult now. There's a man with a white jacket. He's giving the thumbs up. The man is saluted now. There goes the flag in yellow, yellow jacket flag. And then uh, you can see the burners light up. Beautiful. Okay. So, talk us through that now. So, we had the catapult, we had a guy saluting. Talk us through the salute, talk us through the feeling as you start accelerating. There just must be this buzz and this uh, adrenaline rush. It
1: is pretty insane. But um, just before, uh, have you seen Top Gun 2 trailer?
0: Yes. Wonderful. Can't wait.
1: Yeah, so on the Top Gun 2 trailer, you see Maverick, uh, uh, real-world guy. I mean, he's a pilot, but he's not a a real naval aviator, Tom Cruise. And you see him saluting in the aircraft uh, during that trailer. And you see him, he he does like a very quick salute, then he does a thumbs-up, and off he goes. Mm. So he was really in the backseat of an F-18. And I don't know how fast was the salute you just saw, but it's bad communication. It's like... If you do that, if you salute like you did, you're getting kicked off the military. It's not how you're supposed to do. Because what you want to do is salute very slowly, because it's communication between you as a pilot and the team on the on the flight deck to say I am ready to go. So basically, they taxi you around. So you're going to stop. You're going to lower the launch bar. Then they're going to fix you. They're going to tell you, go off the brake. You're getting off the brake. Your heart rate is getting up to like 150, 160. <laughs> and then at some point, they're going to raise a, a, um, the launcher. The guy in yellow is going to raise the green flag and is going to tell you to go full power. So you're going to go full power. It's pull-up time. Your engine is building up. You're checking your engine instruments. You're happy with it. I'm ready to go. And you make a long-lasting salute to make sure everybody on the flight deck sees it. Because those guys have been out there at 30 knots wind for like sometimes four hours. So they might blink. And if you do a Top Gun-style salute like this, the the guy might blink and miss it, which is bad communication, bad performance. So you want to basically take ownership of your communication. And even though with the stress, you only want to get rid of that salute and get ready to go, you want to go slowly, salute, and then off you go. You don't know when it's coming. Some guy presses a, a button on the boat, and off you go. You're getting cat shots. In, in France, you go from zero to 150 knots in 75 meters. So it's, it's more brutal than in the U.S. The catapult is bigger in the U.S. Uh, so it's pretty brutal. When you're light, it's fun. When you're heavy for a combat mission, it, it hurts your neck, to be honest.
0: Okay, why why is the feeling different? Is it obviously you're sitting in this bigger part of momentum. Is that where, where where it comes in on your neck?
1: Yeah, so basically the pull is different. Yeah, at the end of the of the cat shot, you have your um, your nose gear pops out like this. So there is this movement to put you at a better Away, and it's a very brutal movement when you're heavy and it's it it's really it's not very nice for the neck. But <laughs> taking off with a with a forty five when you're getting cut catapult shuttle with a trainer like a t-45 that is very light you really feel the pull on the third third of the catapult and after that you're up to speed and up you go so heavier you are the longer the pull. basically the longer you feel that crazy acceleration force i see so, wow. it, it, it's a good wake up in the morning
0: <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> okay i put that picture up there's a the, the aircraft the, the nose is just coming loose and the main wheels are still on uh, you're obviously free of the catapult by then. And you can just see the hoops of the afterburner. Um, in that clip I showed earlier, it looks like the, the burners come in once you've released off the deck. Is that, is that correct? Is that- you,
1: you usually take off without the burners. You don't need the burners and it gives you extra power in case you need it. But you want to ch- make sure your burners work every single time. So once you're clear of the boat, you, pull, you put the burners on so that if it doesn't work, the boat, somebody's watching, can tell you, hey, Watch out, your burner aren't working. But um, if you use a burner on takeoff, uh, it's going to create more danger on the flight deck, and people are going to have to steer away from your jet wash. Uh, first time we did a burner takeoff on the boat, so one guy got burned uh, in the neck. So you really have to change those safety margins. So we try to do without burners because... It's supposed to work with the burners. If you have an issue, you pull on the burners. It's 50% more thrust, the burners. You're getting from 10 tons of thrust to 15 tons of thrust when you put the burners on. So sure.
0: that's quite a difference. <laughs> that is quite a difference. Wow. And another bit of communication. I like what you said there. That I want to just dive in there when we get to your, uh, your training just now. But take ownership of your communication. Remember that everybody in this unit, we're, this is a disciplined, high-performance team. And, and there's a lot of interplay. And as you say now, people actually get hurt, people can die, so it's very important to take ownership of your part to play and, the, and that long, slow salute was a good example. And again, the, just the subtle communication, just the burner light. Someone's gonna to speak to you if it doesn't light and that's great to, that someone's got your back. They're watching you throughout this whole operation. That's great. Let's, let's just show this other video clip of the landing now. It's just also another, it's from the same clip and the reference is in the description. It's got his carrier, the, the hook coming down. Nice view of the Raphael touching down and snags the rope. You can't tell which, um, you know, there's obviously a few. So let's talk through that, that hook that extends there. Uh, obviously, you select that out. I've seen it in some of your airshow displays. You put it out for the display people to see. But uh, is there, are there a number of these um, hooks that you, or, or the ropes that you hook onto? Talk us through the landing procedure. One of the questions came through is sure. what is the, the final approach power setting? And the, talk us through the landing on the carrier. It
1: depends. So in naval aviation, what you want to do is fly an AOA, an angle of attack. Why? Because everything has been computed for you to follow a glide path. And that glide path is computed between your, um, where your eyes are standing and the, um, the, the difference between your eyes position and your hook position. So hook is here. There is a given distance between the two. And what you want is you, have, you want to have your aircraft at 16 degree AOA like this. And you want to be flying with your basically your head at a very precise position to make sure your hook is at a very precise position, aiming for wire number two. We have three wires on the aircraft carrier. We're aiming for number two. If you get number one, you're a bit too low. If you get number three, okay, that's fine. But you're getting graded, and the best grade comes from a good pass on number two. So this hook is maintained. It's forced down by hydraulic system, 260 kilograms of of. Of hydraulic pressure basically maintains this hook down to make sure it's forced down and when you're touching down, just don't bounce on the deck of the, of, of the aircraft carrier. So what you're aiming for is basically you're flying a 15 tons aircraft, 16 degree Away, so you're between 125 knots and 160 knots, depending on your weight, and you're trying to aim for a, a boat that's moving at about 20 knots-ish uh, up to 25 knots. And that moves sometimes because of the wind. So day or night, after eight <laughs> hours of combat well,
0: and, and Sorry, what is so what is your thrust setting? Is it is it sitting about 85-90% on the way in?
1: Yeah, so the thrust setting is going to depend. What you want to do is you want to maintain your angle and you want to maintain uh, your AOA so the thrust setting is moving all the time. With the Rafale, you have auto thrust. It's going to be around 85 to 92%. Uh, every time you pull back on the stick a little bit, you're going to have this bigger AOA, so you're going to have to have some power back on. So it really depends on, on what you need. Um, it, it's very a very special method of flying the aircraft because you basically use your, your thrust to fly the glide path. So so it's moving all the time.
0: Okay. I'm sure that's come in handy now. We're going to get to some other questions in your airline career too. Um, all right, so... People are saying hello and awesome. Thanks, very interesting. Pierre is asking, um, is it possible for the Rafale to take off from an aircraft carrier without the catapult but only with a springboard?
1: It is supposed to. We actually do have a switch in the aircraft. Uh, We have, like, ground mode, CVN, um, carrier vessel nuclear mode, so aircraft carrier. And we do have this, let's say… Indian type of aircraft carrier switch as well because Tesla is trying to sell them to India um, so yes it could be possible never did the testing haven't been done but it's supposed to work it should work it's just that you won't be able to take off at maximum weight um, depending on the wind and stuff so usually yes it should work so they're trying to sell it like that but right now it's not operational.
0: okay that's cool so let's get through a few more questions and then I want to start bringing it towards uh, some other interesting parts about your life Uh, Dr. Anton, thanks for joining, says, I can't imagine that level of stress. We're talking about those seven approaches. I I agree. Uh, Marie says, uh, bonjour, monsieur Ate. And Kubis Kubis is enjoying that conversation about FastJet, for sure. Willem, wow, Mach 1.4, that's awesome. You have a coolness factor of 10,000, Ate, so there we go. Ate, are you enjoying the airline operations? And uh, let's just put one or two other things and we can take them as you come. Uh, how many support staff are required for setting up the aircraft for departure? Is it similar for landing? And uh, we'll come to the next one after that. So uh, are you joining Airline and what's the support staff takeoff versus landing?
1: Sure. Uh, support staff, um, you can actually use the aircraft on your own just for one flight or two. When we would deploy for air shows, it happened to me to, to land and take off again on my own. I can fuel the aircraft, but it took me hours. I'm not proficient at doing it. If there is any issue, I can't handle the issue. So in theory, you can do it yourself. Uh, You go through checklists and guides. Usually when we went to air shows, we would have a team of three to four guys. Uh, Ideal word, you want a team of 10 guys for two jets. Um, But again, you can do it yourself. In terms of landing, landing, you can come back and you just close the aircraft, take off the key. I'm kidding. There is no key. <laughs> but uh, you, you can do it yourself. You, you, you can handle it yourself. Uh, no no worries. Uh, usually when you come back, you have a crew of two to three guys helping you out. Um, as for the airline operations, it's not the same. Uh, different age. Uh, I like to say that um, fighter aviation is a young man's sport. <laughs> so um, it, it's, it's a different career i'm enjoying myself differently nowadays it's it's a different career so.
0: yeah it is very different and now uh, you're not flying very much at the moment It gives you a chance to, uh, oh, to no. explore your other <laughs> business so uh, let me just take the last couple of questions and then i'm going to dive into something you guys don't know yet about um Ate. uh right frank is asking that support staff. we got that willem thanks for joining he says hello gents thanks for the great chat Ate, how good is single engine performance and have you been required to operate with the one engine inoperative
1: I uh, flew one engine only on Super Etendard, which is a single seat, uh, single engine. Uh, Rafale, the engines are extremely reliable, never had an issue with the engines. Uh, it's extremely rare, almost no case of single engine in the fleet. Uh, really, really extremely reliable engines. However, a single engine operation works just fine. Again, depending on your weight and the the, the flying conditions, if you're uh, fully loaded with all your bombs in Iraq. Uh, it's like 45 degrees. Um, it's not going to be as easy as flying uh, with a sleek aircraft uh, in Brittany where it's 12 degrees.
0: Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's good. It's nice to have the good reliability too that you haven't experienced it. Um, so yeah. last two questions and we're going to move on. It says here, can you correctly see the aircraft carrier when you're sitting at 16 degrees pitch uh, on the way down and then uh, confirm that you have no flare and what is the rate of descent at touchdown? A rate of descent at touchdown is pretty – is around five
1: meters per second-ish, so it, it's pretty brutal. Um, in terms of pitch, you usually put your your seat up a little bit. Um can be an issue, especially when you're correcting, but it's just okay. It's <laughs> – it's, uh, it's within limits, let's say. But it, it, it is a sport indeed. <laughs>
0: it's not easy. <laughs> you make it work. You take ownership once again. Okay, so let's just uh, dive into something. I know you guys are thrilled by it. I'm loving this conversation too. And the coolness factor, Anton, you're right, is, uh, is wow. But here's something that's a bit interesting for you that you don't know. So it hasn't been all smooth sailing for you, Até. Uh, a couple of years ago, you experienced a stroke and uh, many people have their own uh, difficulties in life and challenges to surmount, and a stroke, certainly for a pilot, is quite a big one. So, if you just talk us through how that impact of a stroke for you, you know, where it occurred, how it, how it un- uh, sort of evolved, and then your, um, your, your new reframing of yourself and what's next after flying, because potentially you're not going to fly again, but then you did manage to get back into the cockpit. So, take a moment there, please. Yeah,
1: yeah sure. Uh, so, I was uh, 31. I was a uh... Freshly qualified 737 Max pilot, and I was coming back to France. uh, Took care of my kids, and one morning I had a stroke. So, um, partial paralysis of uh, one one side of my my face. Um, So I spent six days in in intense care, and I recovered fully. Recovered. They discovered that I had um, broken one of my brain arteria. So we have four. In in an air show, I broke one of them, so I've been flying on only three arteria for for a couple years, and I went to combat on three. So so that's explaining the stroke. Um, Basically, it took me one year of flying, so I wasn't allowed to fly for a year. Uh, To recover from the stroke, I started using techniques I was using in sports and in uh, my cockpit in combat, and I realized that there is something you can do beyond the cockpit with all those methods. That's basically what started getting the ball rolling. So uh, I realized, Oh, maybe those stuff can help in personal development. Maybe it can help in the corporate world. So uh, I really got the ball rolling from there. I had one year off, one year to use. So I started a business, got into speaking, consulting, virtual reality headsets and flight simulation to have people work on their self skills. And now I'm doing it on uh, all over the world, China, um, Africa, us, Canada, France, of course, Uh, a lot of fun. (laughs) And, um, I wanted to go back to flying, but my aircraft isn't flying anymore. It was like, once I was okay to fly, it was grounded. So basically I'm still on medical leave for a while and I should be able to fly again in 2021 uh, depending on the Situation with your Canada in the, in the coming months. We'll see. But I'm, I'm supposed to be able to fly again. Okay. We'll see.
0: Well, that's good news. And it's nice to hear, you know, with this adversity, you get, you get, it's a major setback for a pilot being grounded, and that's quite a significant grounding. Luckily, there was uh, no long-term damage seemingly for you. You're able to get your license back. Uh, okay, so then with this training and simulation, you're obviously bringing in your combat tours. I know you've got two tours to Iraq. I mean, that must have been quite a... Thrilling, but also a scary event. You know, you put yourself on the line for your country there. Um, so, bring it back into your your training that you do now and debrief. So, talk us through the sort of the principles and the logic that you have, and how you share that with the leaders of industry. Your um, brief, be brief, and debrief.
1: Sure. Uh, so, I wrote the book called Debrief, and basically, the idea is to go straight to the point. Um, what I like to use usually is explaining to people that our brain thinks in a linear way. Uh, We're now in an exponential world because of the growing of the tech. And as fighter pilots flying supersonic aircraft, we're used to working in those exponential environments. And what we realize is you have to keep things as simple as possible, and you have to communicate efficiently. So basically, if you brief your staff, if you remain brief, concise, you, you brief. And then after every single mission or every single action, you debrief, you get in a continuous um, circle of improvement and it enables you to follow basically the rate of change so you can go from a super e to Rafael, you can bull from there and you're you're in a beginner mindset and continuous improvement so, so truly it's really just brief be brief debrief if there's just one thing to share today it's it's basically the key to to get over anything a stroke personal issues uh, poor functioning team it just works everywhere and it works in naval aviation of course
0: <laughs> that's great i'm glad you're able to just distill the great points out of there and then the principle of incremental gains and just trying to improve just little bits every day to to, to be a better product and and the, the essential message that i like to talk about is that you're not competing against people out there it's you against the version of you yesterday are you better today than you were yesterday and uh yeah i think we've just lost your um picture there for a second okay there you're yeah, coming back sorry,
1: just <laughs> yeah but uh, electrical <laughs> issue my might in a minute um I had a three hundred and fifty issue. Uh, my glass belt on my electricity stuff, <laughs> and so I had some charging issues on the phone. So oh
0: I hope it's going to last a three
1: hundred and fifty some some water leak, <laughs> water leak in the aircraft, oh dear. which is bad.
0: <laughs> Rihanna it's saying, wi- "Rihanna saying, wishing you a good health and for your flying career, mercy." Uh, b- b- we could talk all afternoon it's been wonderful chatting with you I know you've got a lot of other commitments lined up too you're keeping yourself very busy Uh, I hope that we get our chance to meet we missed each other in Toulouse last year and I hope we do get that chance to get together so all the best to you thank you so much for joining it was a wonderful chat and uh, look forward to if anyone wants to follow he's got some great messages on LinkedIn on all the social platforms his website is uh, debrief.org.org and I'll put all the links to the in the description below but uh, thank you for your time I I really appreciate it Thank you very much. Thanks. Have a great one. Thank you for listening. I'm excited to have you on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and remember to subscribe to the show to catch weekly episodes so that you can build your high-performance team.